This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. Helen, do you want to see a sheep at close quarters? This is Kevin. Hello there, Kevin. It's a funny name for an ancient sheep, isn't it? Yes, it's, I'm not sure why I called him Kevin. Your little lamb with your tiny little horns. Oh, and lovely deep coat. And a fat belly. You've eaten lots. Yes. He just wanted to cuddle. Oh, <laughs> very tame. Oh, yes. a pet. Simon had it in his kitchen. All around me are these lush, rolling green hills of the Hampshire South Downs. I'm just a few miles south of Petersfield. I'm looking out across a farming landscape and a cluster of farm buildings. And you might think, well, there's nothing exceptional about that, seeing the crops ripening in the fields and animals grazing. Except if someone was transported here from the Iron Age you know, they would feel quite at home because the farm buildings that I'm looking at, not great farm steadings and grain silos, these buildings are a collection of Iron Age roundhouses, squat buildings with magnificent thatched roofs in a cluster where I'm standing here now with Maureen Page, who is the director of this reimagined, reconstructed Romano-British Iron Age landscape that is Butser Ancient Farm. You do step back in time, even though we're surrounded by lots of people and some are working and some are visiting. It is like going back to the past, isn't it? Yes. So tell me about Butser. The project was started over 40 years ago, 42 years ago, I believe. And it was started because at the time there was perceived a need to find out more about the distant past in this country. And along with the Council for British Archaeology and the archaeological world in this country, so departments from universities, interested parties, there was seen a need to try and find out more. It was set up as an experimental site, and it very much is still an experimental site, to try and understand how things were done and perhaps why things were done as they were in the past. So there was lots of archaeological knowledge because things had been found on digs, but it stopped there. Yes. What Butzer did was... To find out how those things were used or could have been used and how those things could have been produced and made. Because even now, we can never say that is exactly how it was done or this is the only way it could have been done. What we can say is we have tried this, it has worked, therefore this is one of the ways in which this might have been produced or this is one of the ways in which this tool might have been used. And all those things that were tested out here in, in this open-air yes. laboratory, yes. it is really. And really, that's how it was described when it started. It was described as an open-air laboratory mm-hmm. because the person who was appointed as the first director, Peter Reynolds, very much wanted it to be seen... As as a science. It had to be conducted according to information that they had found. It couldn't just be imagined out of the blue. Why did it happen here, in this landscape, amongst these rolling downs? A very I steep slope. partly because we are so us. lucky that in this area, because it's chalk downland, when you excavate, you find things, because the chalk leaves a perfect surface where things have, are very obvious with the marks in the ground. For example, a roundhouse. Um, mm, like the evidence for finding a roundhouse would be marks in the chalk, in the, in the underlining rock, 
under our feet, you would find the post holes where the posts are that hold up the roof. You would find the marks where the wall, the outer wall, had been. You might find evidence of a drip trench further out than that. You would find evidence in the soil of where the fire had been in the middle. Those bits of evidence are what we work with to try and rebuild and recreate what that house might have looked like when it was first built two, two and a half thousand years ago. Over the years, Peter Reynolds, he took part in a lot of radio and television programmes that have fed our appetite to know about how our prehistoric ancestors lived. So let's listen to him in 1976 describing the vision behind Butzer. The site was chosen, really, because in the Iron Age period and slightly before, men occupied it and farmed the adjacent area. And what, what is the project doing? What do you aim to find out? We're seeking, really, to find out how agriculture worked in the prehistoric period, how man lived, and how he managed to control the landscape sufficiently well to even export grain to the continent. That was Peter Reynolds speaking in 1976. He died in 2001, and that was when you were working here. You were an education officer here, yes. Maureen, at that yes, point. That's right. So when you see what's happening now, how are you continuing his work today? I think what Peter really started off was bringing experimental archaeology into the mainstream. At the time, it was seen as a bit strange, a bit challenging. It wasn't mainstream then by any means. And now, university courses recognise that experimental archaeology is mainstream and it's part of most archaeology courses in universities. But also, it's widened that appeal to the general public. So... We will watch television now. We all watch lots of programmes on television that feed that enthusiasm. And we see that not just in our school visits that that, that come from... We have about 18,000 children, school children, visiting a year, but also from our general public who are really keen to find out what was life really like in this country all that time ago. Hello. What what have you been doing? Water and dub. You've been wattling. <laughs> you mean making these fences? Yeah. Are your hands all scratched and sore now? No, no. We haven't done oh. a little. You weren't working hard enough then. And what did they use that type of fencing for, do you know? Houses. Keep the pigs in. Keep their livestock safe, maybe from predators that might have been on the outside? The pigs were really good. Were they? What was good about these Iron Age pigs? Uh, They were asleep. They were just sleeping. They were hoping they are pregnant. So wouldn't it be wonderful if they had little piglets here? Yeah. That would be good. One of the school groups has raced past us and I think they're maybe going into this round house just off to the side of us because there are one, two, three, four. We have five roundhouses here Mm. in this Iron Age enclosure. Yeah, and we're in in the centre of that. And there's a great totem pole in the middle with a sheep's, well, skull. A sheep's skull on the top, absolutely. (laughs) That's because we believe that Iron Iron Age people we know were um, a head culture. And so they believed that the head was the most important part of the body. So it might well be that they would have had skulls on the outside of their houses or on a pole like this because they might have believed that the spirit of that animal was still there in the skull and would protect them from evil spirits. Now, the pole actually is based on archaeological evidence because in the archaeology we find post holes. We might find a ring of post holes, which would indicate a house, but we might find a single post hole. That might well be a pole like this. It might be the post at the middle of a a haystack, like the one over there, um, which would then 
uh, the raft of wood around it, you'd, you'd um, heap your hay up on that. If you leave a, a slight gap between that and the middle pole, it will fall inwards towards the middle pole so it won't disperse. And then you thatch a cap to put on the top to protect it from the weather. So that too would give you the evidence of one single post hole. But we also find two post holes. They might be drying racks, it might be a washing line, we don't know. We might find four post holes, six post holes, eight post holes. And so what we have got done here is put up various structures that could have resulted in those post hole patterns that we find in the archaeology. Right, so this is our roundhouse. Unlike all the other roundhouses that you've seen today, this one's actually made of wooden planks and it's stuffed with um, sheepskin, where all the other roundhouses are wattle and daub. Okay, over here on the floor, you've got a big round stone that is called a quern, and you've got a big pole and you, t- you turn the pole around, which turns the quern where you put your grain and then eventually you'll have the flour. On the shelving over there, you've got lots of pots and in those pots will be your herbs and your things that you would use for your cooking on the fire. Above the shelf, you can see, can you see two parcels of food? Do you remember me saying to you earlier about the, the smoking? The smoke comes off the fire and the food will hang around the top in parcels and it's actually smoking it. So that's what's happening to those parcels of food. I have no idea how long they've been there. It would actually see them through the winter. It would give them so the winter months is three, four months, and then they'd be back outside um, to hunt again for the springtime. Yes. How did they sharpen their swords and their, and their spears? Towards the end of the Iron Age, they had iron. Towards the end of the Celtics, they had iron, and iron was really strong. Once you have iron, you can you can do almost anything, and it's really really strong. So they were able to make their weapons much sharper. But they really only used arrowheads. Um, earlier on because that was all really they had all that was available to them yes what type of animals did they eat did they eat yeah what what skins have we got what what main skins have we got Mm -hmm. and we had a beaver one over there didn't we we? that that brown one over there so they were their main they were their main sources and that's what would have been hung yes it's much it's much thicker no no that's not a giant beaver any other questions? Maintaining this place is obviously very important still. And I'm just looking to the far side of us here and we have a man rethatching this cottage here. This is David Freeman. David, I'll, I'll interrupt you for a moment or two. You, yes. you, you do have a serious task in hand here to do with the rethatching of this roof. Uh, not just rethatching, but rebuilding as well. I'm, I'm repairing. The, uh, the roof was getting in a bit of a state and it just needs strengthening. And as you're doing that, there are school children running all around. <laughs> yes. And, and you, you're doing this ancient craft as they can, they can watch some, on. Some of them notice. Yes. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> some of the teachers notice, yes. <laughs> it is something you've been working on for a long time because you came to Butzer, first of all... Late 70s as a volunteer. So really in the early days of establishing this place, and you would have known Peter Reynolds, obviously. I did indeed, yes. And yes. then I had the pleasure of working full-time on the farm for a few years. What was it like then? Because you were really forging a new way of tackling archaeology by yes. testing it scientifically. Very much so. The project itself had only been going since '72, So by the time I hit it, it was maybe five or six years old at the most. Just tell me about the roundhouse, this one. The roundhouse I'm working on is M74 from the Glastonbury Lake Village. It's not a very romantic name, is it? It's M74. not, no, no. M74 is the mound number that was excavated 
within the Lake Village. The, the Lake Village itself was found over 100 years ago. Just looking at you, David, and obviously you're covered in, you know, the seeds Grime, of, I think. Yeah, <laughs> the seeds from, from the reeds that you're using and on the roof. It's also, but why are your hands black and your arms black? It's soot, mostly. I'm repairing the roof on a roundhouse. Mm-hmm. When the roundhouse was first built, I built it ultra lightweight. I used absolutely minimum of materials. Mm-hmm. So by building them ultra light, I'm seeing how much or how little I can actually get away with. It stood for six years, but the roof is beginning to sag and distort. It is an ongoing process for yes. you, this, isn't it? And again, it fits with the principle of what Botzer is about. As you are doing this activity, you're thinking back to... Constantly yeah. looking at the materials in use, methods in use, longevity of the materials, where the materials would have come from, yeah. sourcing and, them. And do we, do, where have these reeds come from? Unfortunately, they haven't come from the Somerset levels. We have to import them. British reeds are suffering very badly from agricultural runoff, chemical runoff from the farms, and there's very little strength left in them. So we, we end up having to import. Not only is it cheaper, but it's also stronger. Did that mean then that the reeds were growing too tall and too thin? And yes. Just, they didn't yeah, they were that. just falling over. Uh, the, if, you, if you flick one of those, you'll actually find that it's, each stem is individually quite tough. When you put all the agricultural chemicals into the water, they grow without that strength. Yeah. Norfolk reed, I'm afraid, classical Norfolk reed is mm-hmm. just no longer up to it. So where have they come from, your new ones? Well, unfortunately, this particular batch came from Turkey. Mm. But it comes in from Turkey, Poland, Hungary, or most of the eastern countries. Each bundle is what I can get my hands around comfortably. And that's how many? And that's how many I work with. Um, Also, if you tie too big a bundle, the string doesn't get enough tension on it. So you sort of make it roughly where you want it on the bottom edge. And then work. that to even it up out. Yes, I've I've got. (laughs) <laughs> Obviously much harder hands than we, I have. We've also got a specialist tool for that okay. as well, I'll show you in a second. Uh, and then you've basically got to sew it on. And we use a vegetable fibre. Lots of fibres were available to them from nettle fibre, lime bast, brambles, all that sort of thing. Uh, the amount of time it would take to create would be huge. So we cheat a little and we buy sisal. So that bundle that was loose, you clasp together, you place on the roof, yep. and then you tie it down. You basically sew it on, yes. Yes. And then you can see it had been tied to the one next to it, and the one next to it, mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Feel with your fingers, just flick the string, you'll mm-hmm. see how tight it is. The ridges are designed when you're actually doing a slope, because you do it like that, and the ridges catch the ends of the reeds... And push some of them and up. Push some of them up. So you get a little, and that's what did you? What's its a proper legate. name? Most of the hand tools that we use, certainly from Victorian period, were invented two and a half, three thousand years ago. Hand tools uh, from iron, from everything. But the tool of the thatcher is a simple wooden a simple legged wooden and, bat, yes. and reed and perhaps a needle. How long will it take? I can see the other end. <laughs> Is that, is that very heartening for a Thatcher to oh, be able yeah. to see that? <laughs> very much so. Uh, there's about 17, 18 days in so far, and hopefully by the end of this week, fingers crossed, I should just about get there. Should we go in? Well, just as the totem in the centre of this cluster of roundhouses had a sheep skull, we've got another one on the top of the doorway going in. Oh, in that instant... You, you go into the, the gloom, but the smell of smoke fire 
smoke. It's the wood mm. smoke. You're not in the smoke. The smoke is rising and it's in the top part of the roof. So but if you actually um, look at the smoke column, it actually goes up into the roof. If you move sideways to so get a bit of light in, one of the etiquettes of a roundhouse is you don't stand in the doorway. <laughs> because it affects the draft of no, the fire. No, because you can't see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been very obvious. It's somebody coming into the house and just standing in the doorway would have been really rude because it would have cut out the light for everybody else. Yes. The smoke itself, the smoke column, goes straight up from the fire into the roof space mm -hmm. and fills the upper part of the roof. Mm -hmm. And then filters through the... Filters the through the thatch, which is why it's important not to do thatch very thick. Otherwise the doll... <laughs> breathe, yes. You want the thatch to be thick enough to stop the rain coming in and to the snow and to protect from the weather and also to keep you cool in the summer, but you want it thin enough to be able to allow the smoke to trickle out. And, and, and that's a, a very definite thickness. Um, people didn't live till they were very old anyway, and um, we're not quite sure how many people would have lived in any of our roundhouses, and we have lots of different size roundhouses as well. Not everybody would have been lucky enough to have a bed. They probably just would have had, like, a, like a today's sleeping bags and just rolled out their um, skins. Yes. How long would it take to make the bed? Some very interesting questions. How long would it take to make the bed? Um, a day? Because it's really only the wooden base on the outside and then the sheepskins you'd just put on top because you'd have those and the straw you could find anyway. There'd be kids running around, there'd be dogs, there'd be chickens, there'd be geese. There would always be somebody mm. in the house. The house wouldn't, a house wouldn't be left abandoned. There'd be, there would be people there, whether they were cooking, whether they were doing other so jobs. A small but settlement, a farm, would have at least two or three people in the enclosure mm -hmm. at all times. Mm -hmm. The kids would be running around looking after the animals. Do we know what the eggs. climate was like, though, and what they um, were living in? Because early, early Iron Age, nice and warm like it is today. By middle Iron Age, we actually step into a really cold and wet period, which is the one that the Romans moan about. So the roof above our heads at the peak would be maybe 15, 17 feet above our heads, far below in the middle. But it's this inner side of the thatching that I, I think is just so handsome. We've got the golden colours of the wheat which still have their heads on and as you go further up towards the roof they become more golden and then more tinged and blackened by the tar. It's sort of like, it almost becomes like a decoration in a way. It does. I mean, there's no seed in the, in the heads. The heads it's been, they've been threshed, so there's no seed there. The seed would have been used, but they haven't wasted time um, taking the heads off. You'd use the, 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 stra the straw in its entirety. But if you look at the top, the tar coating also helps to protect the roof. It protects the roof material, so it will actually help it to last longer. It is a preservative. As well as being a preservative for other things. We have and, some meat hanging up over there. And an It keeps the bugs out of your thatch. The tar does. Mm, the smoke does. Mm. Keeps the lacy sorts of things Everything. out. Spiders, the lot. Oh. Insects won't want to live in a, in a smoky environment. They don't like smoke. Just think so of that. Spider-free house. <laughs> <laughs> so they won't be up there in the straw. And that means that birds will not come along and try and pull the roof apart from the outside to try and eat those insects because they know it's too smoky. There won't be any insects there, so they leave the roof alone. So, in fact... Having smoke in your roof, going through your roof, was a, a really good way of preserving your roof generally uh, and, and stopping any damage happening yeah. to it. I think, to Maureen, it's another good example of how much more sophisticated the society was in living on the landscape than we, we often give them credit for, yes. really. And lots of knowledge, I believe, that they had as, as everyday um, knowledge that they would be passing down to their children. We've forgotten. We don't need to know that smoke will keep the, the, the insects out of our roofs. We don't have thatched roofs generally now. So we've lost some of that information, and some of it, I'm sure, it would be useful.
now. So we, even mm. now. So sometimes we have to go back and relearn some of those general knowledge that would have been common knowledge to everybody then. You're talking about the sophistication of life. In the Glastonbury Lake Village, it's a waterlogged site, so a lot of timber survives in the excavations, including something as delicate as that. So this is um, a round box with a little lid. Yeah. I can see that it's been stitched. The decoration is burned into the surface. And there are extended triangles which go round... Mm-hmm. And is a typical example of some of the woodwork from, again, the Glastonbury Lake Village. Very important site. Just walking round between the round houses and, and the different constructions they have there, there, there are groups of children and they're all doing Iron Age activities. So some are, are, are moulding um, bits of clay into, into tiny pots and there's a group here who are learning about chalk and, and the powdery substance that it can be and the solid writing implement that it can be and they're marking their faces with chalk dust. But over in this far corner here, this, this is actually quite famous now, I think. Brian Watts, you're an experimental archaeologist. That's and right. this is the dugout log boat. Yes, yeah, <laughs> this is the dugout log boat or dugout canoe um, mm-hmm. that was built here last year um, as part of uh, an investigation into prehistoric boat building techniques. Um, and it was, um, yeah, it was on, on TV and it became quite, quite famous yeah. and lots of, lots of interest into to what we were doing here into this project. And you did something to it that people hadn't really thought happened up until that point. Yeah, we were looking at using fire to burn out the insides of the log boat. Um, It's something that's done all over the world in cultures um, historically where people have been building these boats. Um, However, archaeologically, we've got no evidence for that process happening. So it's an assumption that archaeologists have made all the time that fire wasn't used to build them. And that's where I think experimental archaeology comes into its own in the fact that we can test those assumptions made by archaeologists by actually following the process through. Um, So I was thinking, really, my main thought was, if they do it elsewhere in the world to make it easier for themselves, why weren't they doing it in the past? So we did it here and we burnt this boat out uh, and used uh, historical tools to hollow out the boat from the fire and found out that there is no evidence left of that fire. So if fire was used or not, you can't tell. It's not there. So just because it's not there doesn't mean that it hasn't been used. The enthusiasm and interest in boat building techniques means that this summer we're going to be building one that is seven and a half metres long. Okay, so, so you're, much bigger yes, and much, yes. um, much more in keeping with the size that we find them archaeologically as well. And it, it floated. It did, it did the job. It was like two yep, or three it, people. It, it floated. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't. Um, it was my first boat build, so unfortunately, it wasn't the best. So it only held. It held two people. Um, you wouldn't want to fit anyone else in it. So it was a small fishing vessel, really, mm-hmm. rather than anything else. And, and it's now, unfortunately, as you can see, it not in the the best of states. Um, and it's more like a water trough. It's, it's more like a water trough. <laughs> it's filling up with water as the, the rain falls and the ends are rotting out. But again, it's kind of, in a way, just being left here is is part of a a long-term experiment um, to see what else this boat could be for. Um, Again, if you find something this shape, uh, automatically archaeologists go, oh, it's a boat. That's what it looks like. It looks like a dugout canoe. That's what we'll call it. However, there's nothing to say that this couldn't have been a water trough. It holds water. So it could have been a water trough, or we're going to use it um, in the coming months as an area to ret, so intentionally rot substances and leave them in there to soak. All sorts of different things that it could be used for. I'm fairly sure it's not bathtub, as some people like to think. (laughs) Um, 
But again, isn't that assumption that it's a boat actually being challenged to say, well, it could be used for other things just because it looks like a boat doesn't necessarily mean it was. It is fascinating to think that although you try and come at it from a purely scientific quantitative approach, you do get dragged into thinking, well, this must have been what it was like to be this frustrated or this hot or this cold while doing this sort of job. Or this pleased when it yeah, floated or this out pleased and you when went it fishing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and just that feeling of, and that, that's why, I mean, I, I like boats so much is because they either work or they don't work, uh, and you find out when you launch it, there's, there's no kind of middle ground, and there's no fixing it if it doesn't work very well. <laughs> and today being with you, Maureen, um, I've been amongst groups of school children, and they have such a burning curiosity about the society and the activities of people like over 2,000 years ago. They just want to know so much. People are more aware that life was different all that time ago and, and they are understanding by experience and, and that is so different to sitting reading it in a book. I have lots and lots of people who come back with their children and say, I remember coming here when I was at school. I remember coming as a school child myself. I remember doing the daubing. I remember putting the mud on the walls. And, and that's the memory. They've still got that memory and it might have been 20, 30 years ago. So... It just shows that physically doing something and being involved with all your senses, it gives you a much more lasting impression than just reading it in a book. 